Friday. <laughs> Come on. Wake up. We can do this. This is a hard time in the semester. It's we're at, very hard. We're at week 10, but guess what? The semester's only 15 weeks, so there are only five weeks left. Yep. yep. You're almost yep. done. We're That's excited true. too. Everybody, look, look, if you're falling apart, if you're struggling, if you're stress eating, if things are going downhill, just you've got good company. It's happening to all of us. This is a common college thing at this time in the semester. Yep. I was just talking to a therapist the other day that I know, and she was saying all of her clients are breaking down. Like, this is just like normal life. So we want you to hang in there. We what, believe in you. What you're going through is normal. This is a hard time in the semester, but you got to push through. Yeah, we're excited about that. Um, what do you do when you're, you know, feeling overwhelmed and in a tough spot? I stress eat potato chips, which is my favorite food. I would have potato chips as my last meal. Is there a particular Earth. brand? Yeah, those, uh, I can't remember what it's called. I also lash out at those closest to me. That's the other thing. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. helpful. That's a good That's coping. another thing. What do you, what do you do when you get stressed oh, out? Oh, well, I can't believe that you don't remember the brand. I eat Cheetos. That's my stress food. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and kettle, then, uh, I think kettle, the kettle, the kettle oh, ones with all the good yeah, great kettle. flavors. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was like... Come on, no, no true stress eater can forget. Yeah. But um, I also like to watch a lot of TV, so yeah. I'll, I'll like yeah. zone out. Um, I, think, I think we need to encourage the group with a giveaway. I think we need some yes. giveaways is what yeah. we need. Look yeah. what I have, look what I just happen to have in my pocket. Now, set, lower the bar, lower the bar a little yeah, bit. Yeah, whatever your, your expectations okay. are. Lower it, like puffings aren't coming out, okay. I have three cards here. These are punch cards for free drinks at the Coffee Cottage, Chapters, and the Coffee Cat, which I myself earned through punches and which have not used. I'm just going to give them away. This is an act I'm just of grace, give them away. I don't know Oak. why I deserve these. These are mine, but I'm going to give them to you. That's right. Um, but, and you got to get the most expensive drink possible with these, right? Because if you got the card punch. Yeah. I don't know on what basis though. 20 or, ounces. Uh, what is the basis on which we would give these I away? I think we I should know. ask students who want to share their, their stress management yeah, yeah. techniques with others. Oh, I think that would be go helpful. Go roam with the so, microphone. Yeah, she yeah. Your hand okay, right there. we've got, I saw that it hand has, right you have back to there. Say, that was the first hand I saw. You have to say the right thing, though. You Pass can, it down. It can't just be anything. It can't just be anything that you say. It has to be. Go for it. What so, do you do? What something do you do? I do to release stress is have face mask parties with my girls. Face mask parties? Chapters, Coffee Cottage, or Coffee Cat? Which one do you want? I'm trying to give you something right now. You're not answering me. I don't know. What? Just pick one. Just pick one. Okay, I'm going to give you chapters. chapters. Let's give it up. Face masks with the girls. Hello. That's what we need. I should do face masks. Why are, why are the ladies only doing the face masks? Okay. Is there, is there a men's well, men mask? can do them too as well. I'm going to do it. Okay. I'm, gonna, I'm okay. doing it. Okay. All right. I see this hand. All right, man. Yeah. It's all you. What do you do when you are stressed out? I go hit bombs on the driving range. Oh. oh. Top golf. Right, right. Coffee cottage or coffee cat? Cottage. Coffee cottage. Coffee cat's really fun. It's lesser known. The coffee but cat we is like a deep it. cut. We like coffee yeah, cat. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're I'm less going likely. to the back. Oh. I see that hand. I see that hand. All right, all right. What do you do when you are stressed out, sir? I load a bowl of honey bunches of oats. With oh, bananas. I love honey bunches of oats. That's my favorite cereal. Yay. Coffee cat. All go. right, we hope that's, that's the, the last of three. You can maybe expect another giveaway at some point, but we hope that you are engaging in whatever activity it is that helps you feel a little less stressed um, this time of the semester. 
And uh, yes, we're praying for you. Our hearts are with you. Um, today is Friday, and as you know, we have our panel discussion. We also um, are, this is our first week with a new little segment of the Creed. His Only Son. His Only Son. So let's uh, recite the Creed, and then we'll get right to our panel discussion. Join us. Good? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Dr. Payne, let's give a hand for Dr. Payne taking the microphone yes. to the audience. I'm excited. And I'm so excited to introduce this panel to you. Of course, you remember from her Monday lecture on my left, Dr. Melissa Ramos. Dr. Ramos is one of our faculty members in Old Testament and in Biblical Studies. Dr. Ramos, thanks for being here. Great to see you. In the middle, our guest pastor for today, Mark LaRue. Mark, is, Mark has been on the pastoral staff of Door of Hope Church in Portland. He is from South Africa. He has perspectives on the global church that we're really eager to hear. Pastor Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Y'all can take up your microphones too, by the way. You will need them momentarily. And finally, down there, uh, flanking me on the other side of the panel, Dean of the College of Christian Studies and a faculty member. He's a theological ethicist. You've heard and seen him before, Dr. Joseph Clare. For a first question for today, just to kick it off, I wanted to go to Dr. Dr. Ramos. You had two major points in your lecture that we can think about Jesus through the terms of temptation and transfiguration. Temptation, Jesus is human. Jesus went through everything that we could go through. Transfiguration, Jesus is divine. Jesus is something, something more, something extra human, all in one. I wondered, just from your perspective, and the other panelists can jump in if they want after you've had your way with the question. For Christians today, do you think we're more in danger of underemphasizing Jesus' divinity or humanity, and why? That's a great question. I, I mean, I think that we're in danger of both. I'm not sure that I would prioritize one over the other. Mm. It kind of depends on the perspective that each person is bringing to their understanding of Jesus. I mean, I think that the, um, there can be um, the issue of regarding Jesus as human but not divine, and so the danger there is to regard Jesus as simply an ordinary person, maybe an influential person, um, but not to recognize the divinity of 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 Christ, mm -hmm. and that's the claim of the Bible. But then also, it may be the case that, um, that some might regard Jesus as, as, as divine, but, but maybe in a way that's distant or that's disconnected from the experience of being human. And so maybe they're sort of missing out yeah. on the richness of, of, of both perspectives. Is there one of those things that you think you struggle with more as a Christian to like really get your head around it or grasp it somehow intellectually or in your faith? Sure, I, I think I would say and maybe along with other Christians, that I struggle more with thinking about the humanity of Jesus. But at the same time, I find it enjoyable. Is that a thing to say? I don't enjoyable to think about the humanity of Jesus and, and Jesus really identifying with the struggles yeah. of, of just, you know, ordinary human life right. and the things that we go through. So, so I think that that's something I, I tend to think of Jesus more as sort of divine but at the same time, I think that, that contemplating the humanity of Jesus really brings out a richness to we, it. we were talking in my section this week about imagining Jesus just like as a human going through literally everything a human could go through, like even if it's awkward, like thinking of Jesus going through puberty, for example. Like he was a boy, right, who grew up, and it's like he had to experience like bodily changes and just... Jesus' strict. voice breaking. Jesus' voice, yeah, someone brought that up, like the idea that Jesus' voice cracked 
at a certain point in his life or that he might have had awkward moments with girls. You know, just like things like that that are common to, you know, to people. Pastor Mark, do you, do you think that do you think that the Christian church today struggles more or needs to recapture some element of Jesus' identity as divine or human, or do you, is it a both hand? What do you think? I, I would agree with Dr. Ramos in the sense that either of those things could be compromised in our thinking at any given time. Mm. And I think the, these, that tension is something that the church has wrestled with, which is why it's in the creed. Mm. Um, and I think that um, for us personally, um, it's easy to like lose, to forget that the divin- that the humanity of Jesus is real for us today because he's no longer walking amongst us in bodily form. But that's the reality is, he, he he it's not that he was a man; he is a man, and he is God, and he's he's a man for us today in the sense that he understands even it's a deeply personal thing for him to understand the struggles that each one of you are going through. Mm. But he's also God enough to walk you through those things in, in a way that no other man can. And so I, I think, you know, we can get lost in like, oh, Jesus, my homeboy, you know, he's my buddy. Right. Um, but without actually leaning into his deity, um, or, we can, or we could, he could become so distant to us in like, oh, he's just this distant, figure that used to be, and maybe I can find some wisdom in his words, well, yes, he is, he is wise, and, and those things are important for you today, but he wants to speak personally into those things for you. Yeah, Dr. Clare, you want to weigh in on this? Are we, are we losing Jesus' divinity in our culture? Have we lost the humanity? Yeah, I think this has just been well said. I think what Melissa said, many Christians, including me, can lose sight of the richness of Jesus' humanity and the earthiness of God with us and this mediation of God and man. I have to say it's the divinity, though. I think the perpetual temptation is to lose sight of his divinity. That's what you find in the New Testament, people unable to recognize, because it's, it's just kind of a crazy claim. I mean, it's kind of absurd if you think about it, that this backwater... Jew from Nazareth in first century Palestine was claiming to to be God, at least those closest to him and knew him thought that that's what he was claiming, that's what we know about him. That's scandalous. It sets us apart from the other great monotheistic traditions and Judaism and Islam, and it's a universal claim about who God is. It's an exclusive claim in many ways. There's no other way to the Father except through the Son, so I think it's always the divinity. Let's go straight to the audience. Dr. Payne, what do you think? Y'all, y'all are, are giving me excellent questions. I think, I don't know what's going on in this room, but it's good because I've gotten tons of questions, several good ones. I'm That's a big to, stack of questions there. That's a bigger <laughs> stack than we usually have. Uh, yeah, yeah, and this <clears> is fun. So I'm going to combine a, a couple of them, and it's related to what y'all were just talking about, mm. which is um, a lot of questions about the temptations facing Jesus, whether or not they were, for lack of a better word, le- legitimate temptations. Oh. And so... This one question is, did Jesus struggle with sexual desire and temptation? And Jesus is being tempted in the desert. The way he seemed to resist temptation seemed so easy. He just said no. Didn't seem like he struggled at all. Wow. So, yeah, was this, what, what were the nature, what was the nature of his temptation? And, you know, was it real? Deep breath. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think, Pastor Mark? 
It reminds me of a question that I got once from someone. Do you, do you think Jesus had wet dreams? Yeah. And it was like, whoa. It, the question <laughs> shocked me. Um, we were talking about this in our section this week, actually. So. And yeah. That same question. Join well, your yeah, in, in coded form, we were actually okay. talking about it. Yeah. So, you know, physiologically, Jesus was a, a man, and um, and I would imagine that it's a you know it's a physiological thing, but the, I think the question that whoever's posed this question kind of drills into the thing behind that, like what was the nature of Jesus' temptation? And I, th- I think, you know, when Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, I think, yes, I think it's the same. There's, he was tempted in the same ways that we were. And I think what it speaks into is that if experiencing temptation is okay. It's, it's how we deal with that temptation. And there's um, Jesus walked a a pure life. He lived a pure life, a pure and a sinless life. He was the unblemished, spotless lamb. Um, and so we can safely say that the way that he dealt with that temptation was, was pure and right and good um, in the eyes of the Father. Um, but, but yes, he experienced temptation, I think, I believe, in the same way that we did. Um, I think the, the nature of that temptation, we, we can easily look at, um, at the, the story of Jesus in the wilderness um, and say, oh yeah, he, it was so easy for him. He, he just, you know, he said no. And, and I think, yes, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, because I, I, be, before, that, before that account, Jesus is baptized and even in his baptism, it's an association with us in our sin and our need for a savior. And yeah, I don't, I, I think it's a very philosophical question. I don't know if we can answer exactly like how easy it was for him, but mm. maybe that's something to wrestle with. Something someone brought up in our discussion group was just simply the parallelism with Luke 4 and Genesis 3, which we also read, which is the first disobedience of the first two people. The parallelism and symbolism there is that the struggle has got to be real enough that here, the second Adam, as Paul's going to call him in Romans 5, is fully obedient and submissive to the Father. And in, in some way, if that temptation and testing wasn't real, then the redemption isn't real in a certain sense, but... I would definitely agree with um, with everything that was just said. Uh, The temptation had to have been real. And and I I wonder maybe if we sort of think that maybe the temptation was less real because Jesus had this divine side that we don't have. Um, But I wonder if that maybe even made the temptation harder because Jesus sort of had this way out of being human Mm. that that we just don't have. We don't have the opt-out. which presumably uh, Jesus in, in his divinity and humanity did have a way out. So, so Jesus had to sort of refrain from making that choice and, and remain in the struggle of being human. So I, I kind of wonder if it might have been harder. Dr. Payne? Yeah, us, we've got a more. live question here Let's from the back. The mic nervously passed along. People calling, not it. Hi, um, so my question is for Dr. Ramos. Um, in your Monday lecture, you compared a woman's experience of reading the Bible to dodging lasers. 
uh, because of the lack of feminine pronouns. Um, but the Bible says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So if the Bible equates us and puts us on the same level as men, why do we need to be offended by masculine pronouns in the Bible? That's a great question. Um, a round of applause for the question. I don't at all think we need to be offended by masculine pronouns. And uh, the conversation really there is certainly not just around pronouns. I don't actually remember pronouns coming up on Monday. Did, no, I don't think I said anything I about, pronouns, about pronouns. Pronouns didn't come up in the lecture, but there was the issue was about do men and women have different reading There's stuff in the reading about that. Yeah, the, the, the Wednesday reading, oh, reading. by, okay, um, yeah, by Will reading. Gaffney did good. talk about um, possible ways in which we could read um, feminine pronouns in the language of the spirit. And as that, and as a way of, in fact, reading the Bible more literally to use feminine pronouns for the spirit. Um, so, so certainly we don't need to be offended by masculine pronouns for God. But the reason that I brought that up is um, I do sometimes have uh, students or, or when I was a pastor, members of my congregation who are women tell me that, um, that they really struggle to read the Bible because they don't find very many women characters to connect with. I mean, objectively speaking, there are very few women characters in the Bible. And um, the, some of the characters that are in the Bible who are women are per portrayed negatively or there's violence that happens to them. And so that can be um, very difficult for women um, to read those kinds of narratives, those kinds of stories, um, and to wonder what that's doing in the Bible. Um, so so that's, uh, that can be a, a concern. And I think when I was bringing up the illustration of um, dodging a room full of lasers, that's kind of the thing that I mean. And so um, it is the case for women readers that when we're reading, for example, uh, a narrative about a male character, we have to sort of translate that into our experience in a way that, um, that men don't have to do when they're, they're reading the narrative. Um, and so um, certainly the, the, the biblical passage that you that you raised, um, there's no Jew or Greek, male or female, that is uh, one of the passages that does lift up uh, men's and women's equality. And it's not an issue of, of men and women being equal reading the text, it's more, for me, uh, the way that I see it, more a question of contextuality, your own sort of personal experience that you bring to the text. Everyone brings their own sort of person, they bring themselves to the text. And so for me, it's more a question of what kinds of interpretations of the Bible have been prioritized or been considered normative um, and are sort of male-centric ways of, of reading the text been prioritized or been considered normative? Or, or is it the case that it might um, in fact be useful or, or um, a good thing to do for the church to consider voices on the margins um, reading the text? Much in the same way that, that Jesus did his ministry to those who were in the margins. Anyone else want to jump in on this? I, I listened to an interesting podcast recently by a woman scholar who said, I don't want to bring a feminine reading to the text, I want to bring a, a reading to the text. <laughs> so saying, I don't want people to look at me and say like, oh, she's a female scholar, she's got something you need to bring because she's a woman. She was saying, I want to bring something unique because I, I am who I am. And part of that is that I'm a woman. And I, th I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, it, as I think about scripture as well and our like gender identity with scripture, I think there are ways that we're challenged in, uh, when I listened to uh, Dr. Ramos's lecture, um, the point on sonship being something that, that women might struggle to connect with, 
um, I thought of, well, there's the idea of the bride of Christ that men might struggle to connect with as well. And, I th- and so I'm not, I'm not putting it on equal planes because yes, there's a strong masculinity to the text. Um, but I think in many ways, our identities are, are challenged, um, whether we are man or a woman, when we come to scripture, because yeah. we come to scripture, we examine scripture, but it reaches a point where, where scripture starts to examine us. And, and rather than us reading scripture through our lens, scripture starts to read us and interpret our lives. And so it's this reverse, it's a relationship. Like the uniqueness of Christ and his, who he is to the Father is defined relationally. Mm. And I think even the way we read scripture is it becomes a relational experience where it's not just us imposing our history, our identity, you know, from our cultural viewpoint, whatever's, whatever's informing that. It's not us shaping the text, it's the text starts to shape us. And that's an uncomfortable experience, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, whatever you're, however you define yourself, it's an uncomfortable experience mm. because it starts to reveal things about right. ourselves that, um, that are incongruent. Now, there's an image there that you use, Pastor LaRue, that I wouldn't want to get lost. The idea that in Christian theology, the church, the worshiping body, is thought of as the bride of Christ, a female who comes to meet Jesus, who is the groom. That's a very striking image. Like, how many of you imagine yourself in church, like, wearing a bridal dress, male or female, coming to a, a, a wedding ceremony, in a sense? But this is the imagery. And so I, yeah, I just wanted to point, I just wanted to point out that image, highlight it a little bit more. I th- yeah, just to add on to what I think is, has been rightly said is that I think some of this just has to do with the way, with the way we read as human beings. So if you're ever going to read anything, you're going to bring a bunch of yourself and your own self-understanding to this thing that is foreign and other and outside of you. And depending on what the book is, because of who you are, you might have like certain footholds and advantages into the text. So one of my favorite texts is A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean. I happen to be from the Pacific Northwest and a fly fisherman, et cetera, et cetera. But I've heard from, I've heard from other people who live on the other side of the world and are a different gender than I am that they connected with the text and saw such a beautiful glimpse of friendship and humanity and grief and love and things that were like transcendent of Montana and fly fishing. And so there's this interesting balance when we read of trying to figure out what's particular to the time and place and specificity and culture and context of the text, what's particular to us, and what jumps up above the text uh, in meaning that transcends the whole thing. And I think when you're talking about the Bible, the question is not, is the meaning um, our common humanity or the value of life, but the common element that transcends the text in the Bible is God himself. So in some ways, I think there's an infinite distance between us and any of the biblical texts. And maybe as a man speaking, I don't understand some of the distances that women feel, but I feel very far away from Paul the Apostle in the, jail, in the first century, in the Mediterranean in different ways. I can't understand all of his social, cultural, historical, material context. But if he's talking about God, 
and the God who's known in Jesus Christ, because that God, that subject matter, is today alive and present and available to me through faith, like I have something in common with this biblical author, and I have some way of understanding what in the world it was that they were talking about. That's like the magic of reading the Bible for me. Dr. Payne, what do you think? Why is that mic not on? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. The audience mic, hello. I think it's yellow. I'll try to repeat it so, so it gets picked up. If you can yell it, we'll go for it. Yeah. Right. So the question was about, just to repeat it on the recording, the question was about prayer. If our prayer is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and God has a will, is the issue about us asking for things that we want to happen, or is the issue just finding out what God wants mysteriously and then asking for that? And if God just wants it to happen, is it just going to happen anyway? Like, what is the point of prayer? There's a reference there, of course, to Jesus' most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, um, and so on. So this, I think this ties very directly to the lecture and to our, uh, the part of the creed we're, we're talking about. What do you think? How should we pray to and with Jesus in this sense? I'll take this one on. Um, I certainly think that, that prayer is a moment in which many things can happen. Um, prayer is a moment in, in which we deepen our relationship with God. Maybe that's sort of a, a primary focus of prayer. And, and certainly prayer can be an act of, of listening of uh, wanting to hear and to know and to be changed by the will of God. But I think that there are some biblical texts that suggest that prayer might even be an opportunity to change God's mind about something, mm -hmm. um, which I think is uh, maybe a little bit scary to think about or maybe a little bit um, different than how we typically think of prayer. Um, there may be some biblical narratives in which um, someone almost has a, a discussion with God about something and um, God seems to change God's mind. So mm -hmm. it seems to me that many things I'm trying can to happen. find in here, I can't find it right now, maybe someone can shout out the reference, but Jesus tells a parable. Jesus did a lot of his teachings through these kind of symbolic stories that were really punchy but also ambiguous. And he tells a parable about, you know, a, 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 a woman who pleads with a judge and Luke says, 18. Luke 18, okay, I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna actually read it. Dr. Claire, the Bible expert. Better be there, by the way. Um, <laughs> we should do a Bible drill one of these times. Then Jesus fun. told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. This is Luke 18. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. Sounds like a bad judge. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to the judge and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, eh, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone. Can you imagine a judge saying that? I don't fear God or anybody. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay very long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, I think this is some, refer you know, some way that Jesus is talking to, about himself. This is Jesus telling the story. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? 
That's a stunning parable, uh, which seems to suggest that by bothering God, you might, like this woman and this judge, you might be able to get what you want. Do you think, Pastor Mark, that's a reasonable interpretation of that story, that bothering God enough could get you something like the widow? Do you think? I do think that when our prayers are bent toward God's will, um, that they're, they're effective. Um, I, and, and there are instances in Scripture where it's like Moses' petition before God for the, for the people of Israel where he seems to change God's mind about destroying the nation of Israel. Um, I'm not sure that that's a reasonable interpretation of that parable. Mm. Um, that, but I do think that it's a call to persistence in prayer recognizing where our hope comes right. from. I, you grew up in South Africa in a setting where my South African history is certainly not perfect, but there was a pretty big struggle around race and it, indeed a struggle not just within, uh, not just Christians against non-Christians, but within Christian communities who presumably were actually offering like rival alternate prayers about really important things like racial justice and violence and things like that. How do you think in a situation like that, I know you could probably talk a long time about it, but in a brief way, how could you describe prayer in, in, a, in a divided context like that? We probably have that going on in our country right now. Side A prays for this political party to get their way. Side B says this. Mm. Uh, you lived in a place where something like that must have been really real. Yeah, I mean, just like breaking that example down to a, a very um, everyday experience. Like we would play, when, when we played soccer, we in a soccer, le um, soccer league yeah. before the game, like each team would pray, Lord, help us win. <laughs> right. And that's just like a very oversimplified e example of that. Um, but like politically, um, we, in South Africa, we saw white Christians and we saw black Christians praying toward their own ends. And I think um, from, from the, the white Christian perspective, people doing like praying really atrocious things, mm -hmm. you know, or that if their theology being like severely distorted, um, and that obviously like influencing their prayers. Man, I think so often our will cannot be trusted. Hmm. I think that's something, that's a very fundamental thing to be learned from my experience in South Africa is our will can't always be trusted. Um, and I think God has given us his spirit and he's given us his word um, and he's given us the church and relationships as ways to discern his, as, as Paul says in Romans, his good and pleasing and perfect will and for us to submit ourselves to that. Um, and I think very often um, when it comes to will, the, the wrestle isn't always as much what is God's will, it's more how do I f find myself willing to submit to his will? Mm. Because submission, I think, yeah. I think when it comes to God's will, I think it's often more a question of, man, can I submit mm -hmm. myself yeah. to God's will? I wonder if you could share the mic with Dr. Claire. I want to ask Dr. Claire this particular question. I was thinking about this with regard to my own prayer life recently. What percentage of, do you think, World prayers, prayers that have been fired up in any moment by anybody in the world. What percentage of world prayers do you think are just some version of God give me money? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, God, give me this thing. Like, God, I need more stuff. I need better stuff. God, give me money. Presumably, a lot of those prayers are prayed out of real serious desperation. Presumably, when I pray those prayers, like, oh, God, give me more money so I can take a better vacation, it's like, is God just shaking his head at me? And do I need to examine myself about, like, what I'm even praying for and why? Did you just reveal your true heart to us, Dr. Doe? Yeah, I think I did, uh, unfortunately. 100% of his prayers are, God, give me money. Seriously, like, how, it's, it's a really, or some, or, or some version of that, some version of, like, God, give me something that I want. It's very selfish. It can be in my heart. Totally. I think you're exactly right, because money, unfortunately, you can't do very much with money. Have you ever tried to eat money or sleep on a pile of money yes, yes. or have fun with money? Yes, yes, he has, exactly. It's not the most comfortable bed, and it's not the greatest meal, but what does money do? Money gets you other good things. And I would say 100% of our prayers, my prayers, boil down to God, give me good things or give good things to those closest to me, those who I love and those who I care about. And in my you know, cosmopolitan moment, that might be everybody on earth in some vague sense. But yeah, I think that's all we're ever doing is praying for good things. I've never prayed for a scorpion to be in my shoe you know, when I wake up in the morning or something. And that Jesus says repeatedly, like, ask God for these good things, beg. But he also says, it's not your will, let the Father's will be done. And actually, the only reason I knew Luke 18 is because that was in uh, my church service a couple weeks ago. And in my church, they have a lectionary where they pair a bunch of readings up from the New Testament, Old Testament, and the Gospel. And they paired that up with Genesis 32, Luke 18 with Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord kind of mysteriously on the riverbank. And... He asks him, he finally asks the angel its name, and it's God, basically, is what the text sort of seems to imply, and then the, the angel of the Lord wounds him, and he limps away with kind of a broken hip, and the way I was reading that text was thinking, so much of my prayer life is give me good things, or give good things to those who I love most, and many of those prayers aren't answered mysteriously, or not in the way I thought, or not in my time, and I kind of sometimes hear God answering back, like, soon you're going to learn that I am the good thing that your heart truly desires. I am the thing you're longing for. And as soon as you, you can like make that summit from just all these little good things you're always chasing to deep desire and love and appreciation from God as our highest good, then you've sort of had the wrestling match. And in some ways, like your heart has been expanded uh, as the limp uh, on the hip sort of metaphorically spoke to me. That's right. kind of an out there interpretation of Genesis well, 32, but there you go. Why not? I mean, Students, I think what have we got? Wait, wait, I wanted to hear from Dr. Ramos. Oh, oh I, I just think there can be this sort of temptation to think of John, uh, think of God as like a giant cosmic vending machine and prayer is very transactional. Um, and so yes, that, that there is a sense in which hopefully something about prayer isn't just about getting things, but it's about being changed in some way. Because it would feel very defeatist to think that you just sort of went to prayer in order to, um, I don't know, uh, get something or receive something or this very sort of transactional kind of way of thinking of prayer. Excellent. All right, I've got a, I've got a question from one of your Wednesday sections, and it warms my heart to think that you all are still thinking about what you talked about on Wednesday. So great job. Um, in section, we discussed reasons why Jesus wasn't more open with his powers, and I learned about the messianic secret. Do you have any comments um, that kind of speak to how or why Jesus was choosing to remain human? And I would invite you to also give a very plain language definition of messianic secret. So the messianic secret phrase was often associated with the Gospel of Mark. So there are four stories of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all different. Mark is the shortest one, and there's this thing in Mark where people will kind of like learn through an interaction with Jesus that like he's something really special. 
And they're like, they'll look at him and be like, you're special, you are the Messiah, for example. This, this Jewish term about an anointed one that we've talked about a little bit already. And Jesus would be like, shh, don't tell anyone. Uh, don't tell anyone. And so the question is, why wouldn't Jesus just be, I mean, if you were God, if you were the son of God, wouldn't you just be flaunting it down the streets? Like, hey, let's hire a plane that does skywriting and get some banners and like, let's announce this thing. Um, instead, in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does miracles, does teachings, and ends up getting crucified, which is really disorienting and was disorienting to Jesus' earliest followers. There are other Gospels, like the Gospel of John, where Jesus seems more open about his identity, but not always, and then eventually reveals himself in very specific ways. So I think the Messianic secret just refers to this idea, and you brought this up, Dr. Ramos, in your lecture. Why wasn't Jesus displaying power and identity in a clearer way? Could you take another round at this, another shot at this question? Why, why not? It's maybe a question that is difficult to answer, um, and maybe it has to do with the nature of faith itself. Um, I, I've even wondered, kind of taking the question a little bit further, what if Jesus had done some sort of um, spectacular, very public display of his faith? I mean, is it the case that everyone just would have automatically believed? I actually don't think so. I think that there would still have been people who resisted believing. Um, and so it seems to me that there is something about the hiddenness and the revealedness of God that invites us into the journey of faith. Yeah, I heartily agree. Whether it's in Mark where Jesus is shushing the, the messianic um, identity or in Matthew, he's speaking in parables, teaching in parables, and he's like, well, this one about the sower and the seed, I kind of told it so people wouldn't understand what I was talking about. That's what he says to his closest students, which is often what I say in my classes to my closest students. I said it that way so not everyone else would understand. Um, that's a joke. Didn't really work, but... <laughs> The, it's Friday. No, because the students, they think that that's what we're actually doing, I think. Exactly, but I, I just think the, the four Gospels just resoundingly make it clear, all the way to the point where Jesus is raised from the dead. So if you want a miracle, I would love to see a dead person be raised and brought up. And those closest to him are still doubting that it happened and wanting to actually jam their hand like into one of the wounds. Of the, I mean, I think the, the gospel writer, Luke's got you there, sort of like, hey, isn't this kind of intense, you know, that there's still doubt at this phase after the miraculous sort of full identification of who Jesus is? And I, I totally agree with, with you, Dr. Ramos, is that it's the sense that um, you can look at Jesus no matter how many miracles you've seen, no matter how, how much profound teaching and power has been experienced, and you can just see humanity. You can just see humanity and not perceive the divinity that can remain hidden. I feel the same way with the scriptures in some ways. You can just read the Bible, and you see its humanness, you get its ancient context, it's there, but you don't allow it to be the word of God spoken to you. And I think at the end of the day, it's like a dispositional posture of the heart, humility, opening oneself to God, it's faith, ultimately, that has to do with it. Yeah. Pastor LaRue, we've got not too much time left here. You've been a great guest for us. I wonder if you could leave us with some parting word of, of, of encouragement toward faith, toward thinking about Jesus. I mean, what does this all boil down to for you in 60 seconds? <laughs> so just my mind is so bent on this previous question that I, I just want to say so much of Jesus' ministry was, was to subvert our notions of power mm. and um, if, if he had left us with like this is the way to exercise power in this world 
and he came like w with explosive big firework type things. It wouldn't be something that we could emulate, but I think he came to bring us something that we, a godliness that we can emulate. And so he showed us humility and submission and, uh, and those are things that are deeply powerful and that's what the crucifixion speaks of. It speaks of death overcoming the notions of power in this world. Hmm. And um, a parting shot is asking yourself, in what ways is God calling me to die to myself? Hmm. Um, if, if, God, if Jesus has so identified himself with my brokenness and my sin, how can I identify myself with his crucifixion and his sonship and die to, the, to something that is contrary to, to what he wants for my life? And I think that's the Christian walk. It's like it's a daily dying. Um, the, the crucifixion is something that brings life to us. Um, when we're willing to die to the things that have a grip on us in, in a way that's destructive to us, it brings us life. Jesus brings us life. Panelists, you've been wonderful. Will you join me in thanking our panel today? Dr. Melissa Ramos, Pastor Mark LaRue, Dr. Joseph Clare, thank you so much. Thank you.